If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, welcome to this hour. Alberta, Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Plenty to get to uh, over the course uh, of this hour as we wind down this week and head into what will be the final week of the election campaign. We'll have time for your calls, of course, in Calgary, 403-974-8255, in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. So last night, we got the one and only English language leaders debate. And coming off the heels of two French language leaders debates, uh, the talking point today seems to be a very Quebec specific issue. Bill 21. Apparently, uh, a mean question was asked last night, and now everybody's uh, all aghast about that today. Quebec's premier wants uh, an apology. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau called it unacceptable and offensive. That is describing Bill 21, which is a discriminatory piece of legislation, describing it. Well, yeah, as discriminatory. Uh, so that's unfortunate. I mean, otherwise, the, the debate was kind of disorganized and chaotic. And uh, I think there are some pretty valid questions about why is that it? Why did we just get that one messy English language leaders debate? Well, joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Andrew Coyne, columnist for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. So, Bill 21, uh, I guess we're, we're all not talking about that today. Um, that came up in the leaders' debate. What, what did you make of the question? What do you make of all the reaction today? Well, the question was no more provocative than a lot of the questions that were asked. It stated a factual truth, or at least certainly something that could be argued, which is that Bill 21, which, uh, for those just joining us, effectively makes it, it impossible for people who are observant religious minorities to work in large sections of the Quebec Public Service basically a hiring bar, um, that this was a discriminatory law and asked uh, Yves Blanchet to, 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 uh, to, uh, to explain his support for it. And rather than answer the question, he just said, well, it's not discriminatory, and then, you know, blew up into a tantrum after the debate, uh, saying uh, this is an attack on Quebec, that she's basically saying all Quebecers are racist, which is not the import of the question at all. And we now see, as is so often the case, federal leaders, rather than uh, taking a stand on principle this, uh, on this question, and they've been avoiding it for the most part all the way through the election, rushing to condemn the questioner rather than this appalling uh, law. So it's, a, it's, a, it's another um, pretty shameful day in Canadian federalism, uh, and, uh, and unfortunately all, all, all too common. Yeah, and I think they're they're all guilty of this. Um, but I mean, it was it was weird today to see Justin Trudeau try to square that circle that he claims to oppose Bill Twenty One, but was offended by the question. I mean, if you don't think it's discriminatory, then then why do you oppose it? Right. The, the saddest part is he has the, the, his extraordinarily milk toast position, which is I might someday uh, intervene in, in the court case uh, the, against this. That's the strongest position of any federal leader. 
just, you know, Aaron O'Toole's position is I'm not going to have, I don't have anything to say about anything that goes on in any provincial legislature. doesn't matter if they pass a law segregating the schools. Uh, they can do what they like, and I won't have anything to say about it, which is just craven. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, part of the reason that we formed a federation was not just to have a trade area. It was also to have what I might call a moral community. And in the early days, early decades of confederation, it was accepted as part of the federal government's job that it was to protect local minorities from the depredations of local majorities. Because in any society, Quebec or any other, there's always the temptation for majorities to want to, you know, lord it over minorities. And it used to be the idea that the federal government was supposed to be the protectors of those local minorities. And at some point it gave way to the uh, Supreme Court, and fair enough, maybe that's a a better way of handling it. But you'd at least think that that federal leaders could exercise some moral leadership uh, uh, on this question and and be able to say, this is wrong. This is is an extraordinary wrong in the 21st century, in a modern liberal democracy, that we would be telling members of religious minorities, uh, uh, you know, you need not apply for these jobs in, in, in the public service. It's, it's just disgraceful. Well, and I think it's safe to say that, that if, if any other provincial legislature enacted anything, anything close to Bill 21, it would be a completely different story. So what, what does that tell us about uh, the political culture that exists as it pertains to, to Quebec? Well, the difficulty is that, and this comes up, quite often is that you have a a majority in Quebec that feels like a minority. It is a minority, depending on the context you're looking at it, uh, and feels themselves to be a beleaguered minority on on language and to some extent on culture. And as such, is less constrained than other majorities would feel. In other majorities, there's a kind of majoritarian guilt that says we, we really got to be careful here. We, 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 you know, we don't want to intrude on the rights of minorities within us. But if you feel yourself to be the minority, then you're going to be less constrained. And I, that is the dilemma that comes up on these kinds of questions. It's, a, it's the same dilemma that came up with the sign laws. Let's talk about the debate itself. I mean, obviously, this is uh, the, the commission that was set up by the, the Liberals in, I guess, 2017 or 2018 with the mandate to do the, the one English language, one French language debate. We got a bonus Quebec debate in, in this election, courtesy of TVA. What we got last night, I think, was a bit of a mess. Maybe we blame the participants. Maybe we blame the, the format. But we deserve better, don't we? Of course. You know, this this goes back a long way. We've had debates as part of Canadian and federal elections since the 1960s, I believe. I think 1968 was the first one, certainly since the 70s. Uh, so that's going on, what, 50 years. Uh, and we still treat them every election as if it's some kind of novelty that we've never heard of before. We know that they're important. We know that they can change the course of elections. And we know that they have great potential to be um, useful to the to the to the electorate. They're one of the few opportunities the electorate has to view all of the leaders, all at the same time, close up, uh, unscripted for an extended period of time, without mediation, without you know somebody else ex- talking over them and explaining what they're saying, but just getting it to them straight from the leaders, observing them under pressure and how they react in it. It's not the only piece of information you should vote on. We're not electing a debating champion, but it can be very useful in learning. Um, what people are like, what they stand for, what how you know how they react when challenged, etc. Uh, so they have great potential, but we always seem to blow it. And, and for a long time, we blew it because we left it to last-minute negotiations amongst the networks and the political parties, all of whom had a vested interest. The networks basically don't want to show any of the debates that they could get away with because they'd rather show you know American sitcoms and reality shows and sell ads against them. 
And the parties, it depends on where they're at in the polls. If you're ahead in the polls and you want to have as few debates as possible, if you're behind, you want to have as many as possible. So that clearly was an unsatisfactory situation. So at some point it was decided, let's, let's, let's move this to, a, to, a, to a, a, an independent commission. But the commission, unfortunately, punted. And the first thing they did was hand it back to the networks. Uh, and so what we've seen the last two elections is this, these trade shows, basically, where the, the networks showcase all of their star journalists. So you have five, six moderators, um, and along with four, five, six leaders and 29 different subjects, all packed into one debate. So it's ridiculous. So what clearly needs to happen is the commission has to go back to the drawing board, point one. I think maybe we should replace the commissioners, and this time with people with all-party support. And then secondly, rule one should be we're going to have more debates. And we could have really good debates if we stop treating them like one-time prize fights, winner-take-all. And that's a lot of the, you know, the the debaters are all way over-prepared and over-caffeinated, and it shows. And again, because they've only got one shot at it. And they've got to pack it all into one soundbite and all this nonsense. If you had several debates, if you had, I would like to see a debate a week uh, during an election campaign. You could organize the campaign around it. It would give the media something to talk about other than you know, mindless uh, uh, photo ops and, and, and gaffes and all the things that we waste our time covering. And you could structure it the way that they do in, in, in the American primaries, where the debates become the main event. The debates become something that over time you learn more and more but the candidates and their platforms. You don't try to do it all in one go. And if you had a lot more debates, then you'd have, not only would you have a lot more time to, 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 to spell out your position on these issues, you could have specialized debates on certain subjects. You could have debates with people other than just the leaders. You could have debates where you experimented with different formats and, and saw which formats worked the best. So everything, I think, comes back to um, getting out of this box where we only have one debate in each official language, or in this case, two in French, and I'll say as a last point is I would prefer that we had, I wouldn't insist on this, but I think it, it would be much better if we had bilingual debates where the whole country was watching at the same time. Because what happens, of course, with the French debate in particular is it's not the French debate, it's the Quebec debate. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and you get questions asked like, will you build a bridge over the, over the St. Lawrence River? Or these, these kinds of very local parochial questions, which, again, maybe if you had debates for each region, Maybe it is fine to have to have um, local questions being answered because some of these things are federal matters. But to do it just for one province, again, I don't think makes a whole lot of sense. It was interesting. I mean, there was a little kerfuffle this week about who gets to cover the debate. But I think you raised an interesting issue in one of your articles this week about who gets to participate in the debate. And, you know, by all accounts, Annamie Paul, um, you know, acquitted herself quite well last night. But uh, you believe there was a, a glaring absence on that stage. Well, yeah, I mean, it, and it comes down to... Uh, what's the criterion by which we in- decide who gets to be included in these debates? Yeah. Uh, it cannot be, this is, and this will be news to a lot of people on Twitter, but it cannot be on the basis of what their viewpoints are. These are, these are state-sanctioned debates, state-organized debates. If somebody wants to have a private debate and decide who they want to invite on whatever basis, they can do so. But if it's the government basically organizing the debates, then they cannot do so on the basis of their positions. So to rule out Max Bernier and the People's Party who I think have gone into a, a, a really unfortunate directions, and, and, and I, I really have very little use for them at, at all. But I certainly wouldn't discriminate against them on the basis of their views. So then it becomes, okay, so what is the basis? And the only logical basis for this is how much support does a party have? Because we can't, as a matter of practicality, invite every single party leader, no matter how fringe or how, how tiny they're following. 
But if you've reached the stage that the People's Party clearly has, where they're at 5 6 7% of the polls, which is as much or more than the, than the Bluck and way more than the Green Party, then it's farcical that they weren't invited and the other two party leaders were. It's it's an interesting point. It's a compelling point. What I've always struggled with is is kind of almost like the the chicken and the egg question. Does does the coverage drive the poll numbers? Does the poll do the poll numbers drive the questions, or, or you know the the coverage? And, and maybe it's both, right? I mean, the more attention you give a party, the better off their poll numbers are going to be. And, and I, I, yeah, it's it, it's tricky. It's a tough call. What the commission did was it, it laid down this rule. It took four percent five days after the election call in the polls. It's just so arbitrary. Uh, I, I think a better, if, if you have to draw a line, I think the better line to draw is to say um, there's only so many leaders we can have in the debate. And make your call and make your defense of how many, at what point the trade-off between fairness and, and you know, getting a, actually able to, to, to have a practical debate, uh, how many leaders can, can show up before it becomes ridiculous. Maybe you need yeah. to, to, to break them into two groups or something like that. So defend that, and then just to, if, it's, if, it's, if it's five leaders, then say we'll take the five, the top five leaders in the polls, you know, three days before the before the debate. But the, the, the rules that the commission say, laid down didn't make a lot of sense to me, and, and looked pretty opaque. Mm-hmm. We'll leave it there, Andrew. We'll see what we get in the uh, final week of this campaign. Uh, much more, of course, as mentioned, theglobeandmail.com. Always a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks so much for this. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Rob. Cheers. Andrew Coyne, columnist at the Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. So some thoughts on the way we do debates in this country. Who gets to participate? How many of them do we get? What issues are they going to touch on? So I, I think you make some great points on, on all of that. So anyway, your thoughts on what we saw last night, the, you know, the debates we didn't get during this election campaign, who was or wasn't there. Welcome back. So in about an hour from now, we're going to hear from the health minister, uh, Tyler Shandro, chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, AHS CEO, Dr. Verna Yu. An update on what's going to be done, we're told, to alleviate the pressure on the health care system. Pressure that's being caused by a surge in COVID cases, but also in particular uh, unvaccinated individuals who are falling ill enough that they require hospitalization. And still that represents the vast majority of hospitalizations in Alberta. So how did we get here? How did we end up with, uh, you know, one of two provinces with the lowest vaccination rate, one of two provinces with the highest hospitalization rate? So what opportunities were missed along the way? What do we need to hear from the government today? Now, joining us for some thoughts on uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Alberta's former premier, Alberta's current leader of the opposition, leader of the New Democrat Party, MLA for Edmonton, Strathcona. Rachel Notley joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ms. Notley, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Uh, it's good to be here. So we are going to hear uh, from uh, the health minister, the chief medical officer of health later on today. Obviously, uh, the situation becoming somewhat dire here in Alberta. What do we need to hear? What do Albertans want to hear? Well, I think there's there's a lot of things because, of course, Albertans have heard so little from these folks over the last several weeks. Uh, but but there's no question. I think we've all been quite startled by the the rapid deterioration of our of our healthcare services over the last uh, two or three days, and and reports of of, of significant surgeries being cancelled and procedures being cancelled, uh, particularly in places like Calgary, but frankly all over the province, it's happening. Uh, so we need to see what the plan is to to. Start 
stop the uh, spiking uh, case rising, as well as what the plan is uh, to ensure that our that our healthcare system is sustainable through through this. And um, and we need them to acknowledge that that we're in that position now. So um, you know, there's a lot of things that we've been talking about over the last uh, few days. In particular, we've been talking about vaccine passports. That's a critical way to to both uh, increase the vaccination rate uh, as well as keep people safe who are still out and about. Um, we've been talking about business supports because, frankly, I think the chilling effect of what we've just been uh, describing is going to keep people home and uh, with or without particular restrictions, a lot of businesses are going to go through another round of slowdown and we need to not uh, gaslight their experience. We need to step up and be there for them. So the announcement from Alberta Health Services yesterday, so elective surgeries, um, many outpatient procedures in, in Calgary are going to be uh, cancelled for the remainder of the week. And uh, that's an illustration, I think, of just how bad the situation is. Probably mm-hmm. will get worse before it gets better. But to what extent was this predictable? To what extent was this avoidable? Um, it was both predictable and avoidable. Uh, you know, it, it was a, a risky decision taken back last June in order to lift all the restrictions in time for Stampede. Um, as I've said to others, you know, at the time we were we were concerned, but our fingers were crossed that, that maybe it would be okay. But quite honestly, uh, roughly two weeks after, uh, after the, the full restrictions were lifted, we started to see cases starting to tick up. Up. And and it didn't happen overnight. You know, you could see it was happening, but you know that th- there's a curve that they follow. But while that was happening, you actually then saw uh, the chief medical officer of health supported um, by the, uh, by, of course, uh, uh, approved, in fact, by the UCP, announcing that they were going to stop all testing and, and all elements of things as though the numbers weren't moving. And and then as it got more and more uh, clear that the numbers were, were spiking uh, quickly, more quickly, there was just a, a vacuum and silence mm-hmm. from these guys. And, and now we're in this position where we have nine times the per capita number of affections as the province of Ontario. And that is uh, governance malpractice full stop. There is no other way to describe this. And uh, so it was uh, avoidable. It was unfortunate, but uh, it sounds to me that, that these guys let politics paralyze them and they continue to do that. What about how vaccination has been handled? And, and you know, you brought forward the idea of maybe we need to move now to a vaccine passport. Uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan are the provinces with the two lowest vaccination rates. Alberta and Saskatchewan mm-hmm. are the provinces with the two worst hospitalization situations. There, there's a clear link there. Where mm-hmm. did we go wrong or what, what more can we be doing? Well, I think uh, th- there's a few things. Like, for instance, obviously you've talked about the vaccine passports, and I continue to advocate for that very strongly. We need to have uh, a-, a simple, secure, scannable vaccine passport with a yes/no, and then it needs to be mandated in non-essential service settings, um, and that is going to uh, serve the dual purpose of-, of supporting those businesses that that need their patrons to be able to be mask-free in order to most uh, uh, utilize the business, and it will also uh, bring down uh, the rate of infection 
vaccination and it will also increase the rate of vaccination. And, you know, we know that will work because the evidence tells us that will work. So so that's one thing we could do. But we also, you know, almost over a month ago, uh, called, I think it's about a month and a half, almost two now, uh, called on the government to introduce uh, school-based vaccination programs. Well, we see they're rolling out 11 sometime this week. There are hundreds and hundreds of schools with eligible um, um, uh, kids between the ages of 12 and 18 uh, who are not vaccinated yet. And, and we're starting with 11 in the second week of school. Why are we so slow on that front? Uh, just over 50% of uh, Albertans between the ages of 12 and 18 are vaccinated. So there's a lot of room to improve our numbers there. But we're we're limping along so there's so many different things that that we could do to execute this better um and it's as if the government's been missing in action and they genuinely didn't want to acknowledge that uh that this is still a problem the only time we've really had a, a target linked to uh, any sort of decision or removal of restrictions, of course, was the, the July 1st. We got to 70% first dose among eligible Albertans, and, and that was that. In hindsight, mm-hmm. does that seem like that sent a message that vaccinations were sufficient? They were as high as they needed to be. Did that end up contributing to the situation we have? I think it absolutely did, because I think there were a lot of folks who went, oh, okay, well, I got my first vaccine, so I guess we're good, Um, A. So that was the first thing. So we then, you know, it was a struggle to get people to get out there to get their second. B, even then, there was evidence from other international jurisdictions suggesting that with the Delta, uh, 70% was not going to be enough. And that is what has since been confirmed. And, and, and so it was premature. I mean, we were definitely on the right track. I think we all see vaccinate. Like, I agree with the government that vaccines are the path out of this. And, and I think that, 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 you know, it's very impressive uh, how effective they are at, at keeping people's symptoms under control, even if they get infected. So it is a long-term solution. But, but this political imperative to get it done in early July uh, put was reckless and it put Alberta at risk because we had too many people that were unvaccinated at the time. As a percentage of the overall population, uh, more than one in three were unvaccinated when we lifted all the restrictions. And that was irresponsible. So the, the vaccine passport idea, which you've been touting, are the provinces going down this path? Um, you know, and certainly looking back, and I know that, that here in Alberta we had issues in developing a COVID alert app, and, and there were problems mm-hmm. with that. There, there are challenges in, in developing a system like this. How, how quickly do you think we can roll this out, and, and how, how much of a challenge is it? Well, and that is really a concern again, because, you know, we, we started talking about vaccine passports uh, over a month ago, and you saw the jurisdictions doing it as well. And, and you're quite right that, that it's, it's not, I mean, it, it, it has the capacity to be a, a helpful tool, a, a critically important tool, but these things never roll out without some bumps. And so you do need to start working in advance. And, and, and so even if these guys finally pull their head out of the sand and say, okay, maybe we will join the rest of the country on this practical pregnancy, effective measure, um, then then we're still looking at weeks before it can come into effect. And, and so we're going to lose out on that. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's striking. Uh, Ontario initially said no, and then they changed their mind. And they did that when faced with, with infection rates that were, you know, at the time, one-sixth of Alberta's. They're now at one-ninth of us. But at the time, it was significant, you know, either was significantly less. 
So they could see what was coming down the train track. They looked at the train track. They looked down it. They saw the train. They thought, mm, better deal with this. Uh, Alberta, you know, Jason Kenney, the UCP government just refused to even look. Well, and regardless of whether it's it's half measures or, or whether it's finally taking that step and embracing the idea of vaccine passports, I, I think, as you allude to, anything meaningful is is probably still weeks away. And, and we've got a, yeah. a real crucial situation happening right now. It's really much we can do at the moment uh, with regard to the pressure on the health care system. Well, I mean, and that's where I'll be very interested to see what uh, uh, Berna in particular, Berna U particularly, has to say about the capacity of AHS to to accommodate what is likely going to be a few weeks of some incredible pressure now because these things, you know, as you know, the hospital react, the hospitalization rates are about two weeks behind the case rates. Uh, so we have not even crested yet in the hospitals, even if, if the cases started going down today. And we don't really see an indication of that yet. Um, so, so we know we have a, a have a problem. So we'll be very interested to see uh, what they'll do. But you know, yesterday we proposed a a science table, uh, much like what they have in Ontario, uh, to start giving uh, transparent and accountable advice and recommendations and modeling and evidence uh, to the public as well as to the government. Doesn't mean the government has to answer it or or agree with it, but they do have to explain why they don't go with it if they make that choice. And we saw that. critically improved the response in Ontario because Ontario was sort of going off the rails last spring and then they finally decided that the only way to deal with the public anger over that was to accede to the science table request and there have been you know some disagreements along the way but generally speaking their performance has improved we need that here in in, uh, Alberta as well we have to take the political filter off of the um, healthcare decision making uh, that is in play right now. Mm-hmm. Well, some tough days ahead. We'll see what this afternoon brings us. Uh, Rachel Notley, thank you so much for your input on all of this and appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Okay, thank you. Take care. All right, you as well. There you go. Rachel Notley, former Premier, current opposition leader, NDP leader, MLA Edmonton Strathcona. Uh, so there's the opposition uh, take on the situation. Obviously, we're going to hear live from the health minister uh, as well as the chief medical officer of health and AHS CEO, not the Premier. Uh, unless he decides to make a surprise appearance. And uh, look, by the way, I mean, the door's always open on, on this program and this station uh, for the Premier. If he ever wants to drop in for a conversation. And good afternoon, Alberta. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you on a busy Thursday afternoon. Obviously, we've got a, an English language leaders debate uh, happening tonight. We are 11 days away from a federal election. Uh, more pressing matter, 3.30 this afternoon. We'll hear from Alberta's health minister, chief medical officer of health. Some steps being taken to address the increasing pressure on Alberta's health care system as a result of surging COVID cases. And we'll have that for you live at 3.30 this afternoon. So plenty still to get to on the program this afternoon and we'll have some time for your phone calls as well but off the top in this hour i think an important question in all of this as we uh, deal with a fourth wave of this virus where did the virus come from in the first place the origins of this pandemic now we know that uh, the virus seems to have first infected humans in china uh in in wuhan it would appear but how did that happen now essentially we're, we're left with two explanations uh, a crossover from from animals to humans, as we've seen in the past with other viruses, or the potential that this leaked from a lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, 
happens to be in, in the same city where it appears as though humans were first infected with this virus. And it's become a bit of a charged conversation, even a politically charged conversation. Clearly, there are some implications if indeed China has been uh, covering up some malfeasance here. But what do we know at this point? What can we know at this point? In particular, when it comes to really studying and understanding this virus. Well, it's a recent study that takes an in-depth look at all of this. What we know about the virus, SARS-CoV-2, its similarities to other viruses that have emerged, and what kind of conclusions we can draw about its origins and the likelihood of a zoonotic origin for this virus. Joining us on the line this afternoon, one of the authors of this paper, uh, Dr. Angela Rasmussen joins us, a a virologist who is uh, now at the uh, University of Saskatchewan, the Vaccine Infectious Disease Organization, VDO, which is uh, working on its own vaccine at the moment. By the way, big coup, I would say, for uh, the U of S and by extension Canada. Dr. Rasmussen, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Uh, obviously, you've been following the uh, conversation, the debate uh, around the origins of COVID. I think you've seen how, how political and, and how contentious it can be. What's your sense looking at it as a vir- virologist who's taking a scientific approach? Wh- why do you think it's become so emotionally charged? Well, I, th- I think for a variety of reasons. And I think one of those reasons is actually very human. This is certainly outside my area of expertise, but... Right. You know, this pandemic has completely upended the entire world in so many different ways. And that means that it's also really upended the lives of so many individual people. And I think it's human nature, really, to try to look for an explanation. Um, Unfortunately, I think it's also human nature to try to find the most sinister explanation and to look for somebody to blame. And really, it's, it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to accept that most pandemics, and this this is true, most pandemics and epidemics are the result of a, a really unfortunate accident. Um, there's really nobody to blame. It's just the way that they emerge. Um, it's just the, the product of ecosystems being disrupted and, and somebody being in the wrong place at the wrong time and coming into contact usually with the wrong animal carrying the wrong virus. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of the the more conspiratorial explanations for the origins of this pandemic are really uh, directed at that because it's a lot easier to point the finger at an adversarial superpower than it is to to say, you know, this is just something that happened to us. By the way, so we, we've kind of got the... the- the two explanations, um, you know, to put it simplistically, uh, the, the zoonotic crossover and, and the lab leak. But, you know, and I've seen a, a different kind of hypothesis proposed that is sort of in between the, the idea that, you know, lab workers or researchers uh, going to uh, bat caves, going into these areas could have potentially been exposed uh, to the virus there. Would, would that, which category you, would, would that fall into, do you think? In my view, that that is actually a zoonotic origin. So yeah. there are there are very many reasons why people will come into contact with wildlife, um, and one of them is to, of course, do research. But you know, people people do go into caves. They do go into places where bats live. Um, any type of contact with bats in their natural environment that results in an infection would be a zoonotic origin, even if that person is going there because they're conducting scientific research. So in terms of what we can know at this point, uh, I mean, short of, you know, finding the, the animal in question or short of the, the Chinese just saying, you know, here's all the documentation or oops, we screwed up and, and here's what happened. I mean, what can we know at this point? 
Well, this is the problem, really. And you mentioned earlier that this has become a very politically fraught topic. Um, one of the problems with this is that in order to figure out really where this came from, we're going to need access. Um, and that's true whether it came from a lab or if it came from nature. We're going to need access to the places in China where it may have emerged. And because this has become such a politically fraught topic, um, I think that it's really unlikely that we're going to be getting that access anytime soon. Um, so unfortunately, the, the nature of this discussion has really uh, hurt our chances of having the independent investigation that I think everybody wants. Yeah. So this study looks at some of the evidence that points to a, a zoonotic origin. So evidence really, I think, needs to, to lead this quest here, um, regardless of, of what conclusion it, uh, it takes us to. So what, what do we have in terms of evidence so far? So I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that one of the biggest problems with this is it has not been evidence-driven. And I think the important thing that people need to know is that there's not evidence to disprove or falsify any of these origins hypotheses. Right. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean these hypotheses are equally likely. And that's really what our, our paper was reviewing, is the entire evidence base, which as I mentioned is scant, but it does point us into some compelling directions. Um, and I think that I feel pretty confident saying that the evidence is starting to stack up on the side of a zoonotic origin being more likely than a laboratory origin. And I'll just say really quickly that I can very easily sum up the evidence for a laboratory origin in Wuhan uh, in one sentence, and that is that the virus emerged in Wuhan where there also is an institute of virology that studied bat coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. That is the sole evidence for a laboratory origin from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They work on similar viruses. It's in the same city. It must have come from there. On the other hand, though, if we look at the evidence for, for a zoonotic origin from animals, there is increasing evidence that has been accumulating that makes that a more likely possibility, in my opinion. And that is that not only um, is this virus very similar to SARS coronavirus classic, um, that's why it's called SARS coronavirus 2, right. but we learned uh, a few months ago in June that the animal markets in Wuhan, where live animals are sold, um, were selling species that are known to be susceptible to SARS coronavirus 2, including palm civets and raccoon dogs. Now, this is important because palm civets and raccoon dogs in live animal markets were responsible for much of the spread in the human population when SARS Classic emerged in 2002. And it was those exact species that were involved. And a lot of people have said, well, you know, they looked at the early cases and not all of them were associated with this one live animal market that I think a lot of people have heard about, the Huanan Seafood Market, um, which is a very, very large wet market complex. Uh, but, you know, some of the earlier cases were not associated with that market. Well, it turns out that these live animals that are sold in the markets come through a common supply chain. We also know from the original SARS classic outbreak that a lot of the people who work in the live animal trade industry, um, including the people who raise, capture, and transport the animals and distribute them in major cities in China, have antibodies to SARS-related coronaviruses. So it's completely possible that one of these people bringing animals down this common supply chain to Wuhan could have distributed infected animals to multiple live animal markets throughout Wuhan. 
and that people could have been exposed that way. And there is some genetic evidence suggesting that there were a couple early lineages of the virus. They're not that different, but they're just a little bit different that supports the idea that there were multiple spillovers from animals into people. And then finally, those early viruses that were spreading in Wuhan, the earliest cases were clustered around where these live animal markets are and not specifically clustered around the location of the Wuhan Institute of Virology where the bat coronavirus experiments were done. Um, in addition to that, excess deaths mirror that pattern. So they're closer, the excess deaths went up in close proximity to the markets um, before they went up in close proximity to the WIV. So all of that together um, really does suggest that that the live animal trade may be a lot more associated with this in the city of Wuhan than the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And then finally, the last piece of evidence that to me is really compelling is what's happened before our eyes. We see all of these new variants emerging. We've seen uh, now there's been outbreaks on mink farms where the virus has gone from people to the minks back to humans. This virus is not well adapted to the human host. It hasn't been circulating in people for a long time. That suggests that it wasn't the product of experiments uh, intended to create a virus that was uh, more likely to infect or cause disease in people. This virus is constantly adapting to us. It's becoming a better virus since it is. Um, and that really does suggest that those early cases in Wuhan were early cases of a virus that had just found its way into the human population and hadn't been pre-adapted for spread within humans. Very interesting. Well, the research is published at cell.com, C-E-L-L, and uh, much more at uh, vido.org. Dr. Rasmussen, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. It's my pleasure, Rob. Take care. All the best. You as well. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the uh, Vaccine Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan, having just recently relocated uh, from Washington State. So like I said at the outset, uh, a big addition, a big land uh, for Vito at the University of Saskatchewan, and they're doing some important uh, vaccine development research. But yes, as she said, th- this is an important question to understand. The World Health Organization is ostensibly trying to get to the bottom of this. And yes, the, the, the way in which China has responded and uh, cooperated or not cooperated is, you know, it certainly gives rise to, I think, a lot of this suspicion about, well, what is it that China is trying to hide here? I mean, ultimately, I think China would rather the narrative be that, that um, you know, COVID emerged somewhere else and they just happen to be the first to detect it. But obviously, China's handling of, of this outbreak is an indictment in and of itself, regardless of where the virus came from. You know, the fact that uh, China seemed to uh, want to ignore it or sweep it under the rug for so many weeks, it's a big part of the reason why this became such a problem. Uh, so, as, as Dr. Rasmussen says, there's compelling evidence that points to zoonotic origin. There's certainly the circumstantial evidence uh, of uh, Wuhan as a hot spot uh, or as ground zero in, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But what do we have beyond that? It was 30 years ago today that this song was released. And like that was that was four seconds. And I think already probably all know what uh, I'm talking about. It's one of the biggest songs really of the, the 20th century. If you go by the ranking of the most streamed songs of the 20th century, I think it's behind only Bohemian Rhapsody. Smells Like Teen Spirit was the first single released by the band Nirvana. 
And uh, they went from relative obscurity to, well, some great heights. And obviously that, that all ended tragically, but it had a huge impact on, on the music of the 90s, you know, laying the, the groundwork for what was known as, as grunge. Uh, but really, I mean, it was just, it was a big rock and roll song. And here we are 30 years later. I think it's now what we might otherwise uh, refer to as classic rock. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on uh, the legacy uh, of that song and the band, of course, uh, Alan Cross joins us, uh, music writer, broadcaster, historian, uh, the host of the ongoing series of new music uh, podcast, or the ongoing history of new music podcast, and uh, much more at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. And I, I remember it very, very well. As a matter of fact, this was the day 30 years ago that the single appeared in the stores. Yes. It had actually gone to radio on October, on the August the 27th. Oh, is that right? And, okay. Yeah. So it was standard practice to release it to radio for a couple of weeks ahead of when it would be in the stores. Then that single would be in the stores for a couple of weeks before the album came out. So August 27th for radio, September the 10th for the stores, September the 24th for the album. That was the order of release. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, a guy walking from the record label, walking into the studio. I was working middays at that time. And he had this thing, this CD in his hand. He says, play this next so, okay, uh, it was 11.38 in the morning on the 27th of August. I remember it very, very clearly. I put it on, and if you knew what was happening with music at that time, nothing sounded like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Nothing <laughs> at all. And uh, from it took about 30 seconds before the phone started to ring, and people were asking, what is this? What is this? What, what are you playing? And at that moment, and I know this sounds like somebody looking through rose-colored hindsight glasses, but no, it, it really blew up immediately from that moment. Yeah. And I was doing some club nights. Uh, by the end of that week, so it would have been a Tuesday. I think August the 27th was a Tuesday. Uh, by the end of that week, when I was doing my club thing, uh, People were going, we had a promo copy of the CD, not a, a one that was available to the general public. By the end of the week, everybody knew the words, and they were singing and dancing along to the world, to Smells Like Teen Spirit. The single comes out on September the 10th, and by this time it's blowing up into this, oh my God, what is this thing? The album comes out on September the 24th, and... Exactly, something like 46,000 copies went out to record stores that day because the thinking was, well, if this album sells 100,000, 150,000 copies total, well, we'll be very happy. Uh, the album ended up, by the end of September of 1991, was selling 300,000 copies a week. And it stayed that way for weeks and weeks and weeks. What other people, what people seem to forget is that September 24th, when the album Nevermind does come out, that was also the release day of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, and also Bad Motorfinger from Soundgarden. So those three albums released, oh, yeah. all, those legendary albums released on the same day in 1991. 
Yeah, it's funny. We, you know, we chop up music into decades, right? So you can talk about 80s music or 70s music or 60s music, and people have an idea of what you're talking about. But, you know, it's, it's not so smooth. There's little difference between, uh, you know, a song that came out in 1989 and a song that came out in 1990. But it feels like this is when the 90s kind of began, right? At least in, in terms of this kind of music. It was when everybody started paying attention, yes. I mean, we had gone through most of the 80s with hair metal and yeah. um, a variety of, of, of uh, pop trends. Um, by the time we get to 1990, there was a sense that something was about to change. Hair metal had gotten very, very tired because everybody had become very derivative. Uh, there were far too many power ballads. Uh, classic rock, which had become a big thing in the previous five years, was uh, starting to choke the Generation X, who was really tired of, you know, these dinosaur bands, that was the thinking back then, um, their parents' music, it was just, you know, they wanted music that um, encaps- encapsulated their dreams and hopes and wishes and fears and anger and all the rest of it. And uh, 1991 comes along, and so many things happened that year. What a pivotal year. I mean, Tragical Hip releases fully, completely. Uh, we have uh, the first Lollapalooza tour. We have R.E.M. releasing their Out of Time album. We have Nirvana. We have Pearl Jam releasing the 10 album on September on uh, August the 27th, the same day that Smells Like Teen Spirit was delivered to radio. And then, like I mentioned, we had uh, the Chili Peppers, and then we had Soundgarden. We had U2's Octane Baby later that year. All this stuff happening in exactly this, you know, about a 10-month period. Uh, and if you were alive in 1991, your head was spinning because yes. all this new, exciting, crazy stuff was coming out almost every single week. It's funny because, you know, those of us who were, were teenagers or college students at the time, you know, we're all in our, in our middle ages now. We're all, we're all middle-aged adults. Um, and, and it's funny because some of that stuff was forgotten. Some of it uh, doesn't really hold up well. But but for certain bands or certain songs, they, they really are timeless. I mean, you know, it Smells Like Teen Spirit has over a billion streams on Spotify. And kids today, you know, the, the teenagers and the college students today, they all know that song. They all know uh, the words. They all know who, who Kurt Cobain was, even though they weren't alive when, when he died. What, what is it about this particular song and what this group did? It is quite possibly the last great superstar rock song sung by the last great superstar rock star. Uh, and, you know, it, it, uh, what can you say? The, the 90s were such a, 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 an important decade for music. Yeah. And, and the music then sounds just as good as today as it did back then. Now, there, there were some, it's hard to date a lot of 90s music because it was real meat and potatoes rock, guitar-based drums. If you go back 1960s, there's a lot of stuff that sounds dated because of recording techniques, because of instrumentation that was used. We get to the end of the 1960s, and that music begins to sound timeless. We get into the 1970s, same kind of thing until we get to about 1978, 79, when synthesizers come in. Mm-hmm. And all these early attempts at synthesizer music were really cool and futuristic at the time, but then became sort of dated in their sound as the technology improved. We move into the 1980s, and the 80s is filled 
with dated sound, gated reverb, um, electronic drums, uh, synthesizers that were all drawn from the same presets. Uh, so, so there was a certain amount of, if you listen to an 80s song and you don't know it's an 80s song, you still know it's an 80s song, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, yep. And, and then everything goes back to the basics again in the 1990s. And for the first half of the decade anyway, you have what is timeless meat and potatoes rock and roll, and we're still listening to it now. And it's interesting too. I mean, the... The, the difference went when an artist is no longer with us, right? And, you know, some artists wear out their welcome and they, they keep performing the same song, wear out their welcome, right? And, and, and it just, it goes on too long. Um, you know, when, when, when Kurt was, died, when, when he took his own life, I mean, he's, he's gone, right? He's, he's never going to perform that song again. There's obviously never going to be a Nirvana again. And I think that also has an impact, doesn't it, on, on a band's legacy and, and how we remember their work? Oh, yeah, the ever-popular tortured artist effect. Um, when, when somebody checks out in such an emphatic way, you, you're guaranteed to be legendary because, in Kurt's case, he will be forever 27 years old, this tortured guy who, who had so much potential but was in so much pain. I mean, saw it the same with, uh, with Jim Morrison. We saw it with Jimi Hendrix. We saw it with uh, Janis Joplin. We saw it later with Amy Winehouse. We saw it with uh, Chester Bennington and with... Uh, later, to a certain extent, we saw it with uh, Chris Cornell. So if if you do die, I mean, it can be a great career move. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But it can be a great career move because it immediately uh, encases you in amber. You are never yeah. going to get any older. You're never going to get any worse. You're never going to get, um, you know, people are never going to get tired of you because you have stopped forever doing what you're doing. And that a lot, the, the, the shock of your, your disappearance uh, prompts an awful lot of reevaluation of what you left behind. And in many cases, that reevaluation results in uh, an elevation of, of the opinion of, of, of your art and whatever it is that you, uh, that you recorded while you were alive. Well, and it, this is interesting, too, as a side note to all of this, and you wrote about it, this, this lawsuit. I mean, it's a reminder of how long ago this album was. The baby who was on the cover of Nevermind is now very much an adult and has decided after all of these years that he didn't appreciate being on the cover uh, and, and is suing the band. What, what did you make of that? <laughs> I thought, gee, he knows that it's the 30th anniversary of Nevermind. Yeah. This, this is a guy that, this is ridiculous. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but... Uh, uh, the, the lawyer for this guy was on uh, with Chris Cuomo on CNN the other night, and Chris kind of just took it apart. Basically, he says he's being exploited. He uh, because the photographer later added the dollar bill as part of the artwork after the fact uh, that this is a demonstration of child sex trafficking and. This is all about pedophilia and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, he was happy for 30 years of his life to be the, the Nirvana baby. His name mm-hmm. is Spencer Eldon. He's, he's 30 years old now. And uh, over the course of a number of years, he's recreated that shot himself just to say, hey, you know, I'm that little baby on the cover of one of the most iconic albums of all time. Uh, isn't it cool that you can see me get older? Uh, but for some reason, maybe he needs the money, maybe he needs the publicity. He decided that he was going to concoct this, this stupid lawsuit that has absolutely zero chance of, of succeeding in the courts. Uh, he's asking for about a total of $2 million, somewhere between 2 and $4 million from members of the band. He's even asking for money from record labels that don't even exist anymore. He was asking for money from uh, uh, Chad Channing, who was a Nirvana drummer who had nothing to do with the Nevermind. Oh, really? It's just. 
it's just stupid and and uh it's it's got it's gonna go nowhere well, let's hope so. All right. Much uh, more, as mentioned, at journalofmusicalthings.com. And, of course, check out the Ongoing History of New Music podcast. Alan, always a pr- pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. You bet. Cheers. Alan Cross, uh, writer, broadcaster, historian, uh, as mentioned, the podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music, at journalofmusicalthings.com. So 30 years ago, hard to believe in some ways, which uh, if I do the math, if I was in grade 12 30 years ago, That would be my 30th high school anniversary is coming up. Yikes. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.